Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on gap filling, when government and governing institutions fail. We're talking with community leaders about how nonprofit and advocacy organizations, local grassroots groups, and individuals are doing the work for community when government can't or won't. This episode is won't. <laughs> if you if you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind the scenes content about each episode, you could head on over to patreon.com slash growing democracy oh. You can, you should, and also check out our social medias, plural. Medii? No, no Medii. <laughs> Medium. We have so many social medias. <laughs> We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We're not yet on TikTok. If you want us on TikTok, go ahead and, uh, you know, leave a comment below. We'll we'll jump on TikTok and do some talks. (laughs) What is the, I don't know what the word is. It's okay. We'll we'll post something. We'll post. We'll post something. Something entertaining. Very in touch with the medias. Very, very in touch mm-hmm. with that. Couldn't be more <laughs> in touch. Almost as in touch as uh, antitrust laws are with current standards. <laughs> that was a was good it? pivot. That was right? a, yeah. It was Thanks. really, it was really good. I- <laughs> it, but I, I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that our antitrust law is from 1890. Yes. That is. Was that shocking to you? Yeah, actually, it was. Uh, I, I was like, oh, that's like kind of the fundamental. Um, piece of uh of law that antitrust rests on. Yeah, I mean, and the Clayton Act is newer, but not by much, and it's still really, you know, only one small piece of it. It's mm-hmm. it was surprising, and I, and I think maybe more uh, concerning to me was the conversation today and just talking about right that government isn't really enforcing antitrust laws. Um, yeah, there, there's no. Well, can I hold on? I want to interrupt real quick because yeah, yeah. because I think it's important, really, momentarily before we get into the weeds of talking about what the episode is about. It, it's like to really emphasize that for this episode, oftentimes when we're talking about gap filling. We're talking about really local. I mean, literally grassroots, <laughs> like right. people who are like working in community gardens. I mean, we, and we've had some other places too, right? Kind of bail reform and all that. But in this context, I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there is laws on the books. Yeah. It's just that government won't. Yeah. yeah. They've, <laughs> they've the opted out. Yeah. yeah. They've opted out. There's no public appetite for enforcing it. And so uh, there's just no enforcement. Of and, it. It, and it leaves it primarily to individuals to bring cases to, to tackle antitrust and that that's a really hard place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So functionally it's, it's the legal system, but necessarily it's individuals that are harmed by, you know, the activities, uh, the barriers created to entry of other organizations. Mm -hmm. And so that's a pretty massive uh, gap (laughs) as a pothole. The size of Manhattan. So, uh, the and the last thing that I think was 
was a really interesting takeaway from the conversation that we had today. And, and you'll also notice a lot of this was unscripted and, and just, <laughs> I thought really a lot of fun. Uh, but, and I say unscripted, we, we don't script very much. We send them a few questions ahead of time. Was that to even get to a place where this law is workable and, you know, and in the opinion of this expert and the opinion of this scholar, the law isn't the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So much so as that the lack of enforcement or the uneven enforcement is the problem. Mm-hmm. But to even get to the level where it's workable, we first have to get to the point where we, ha- where we have and, and want, right? Just want a functioning government. And I think that's where this conversation, I mean, there's so many different places where this conversation is so vital to the Growing Democracy Project, whether it's just understanding policy, demystifying policy, or but but to that point in particular, right? Like our our, our guest argument that that antitrust would create a better market. That in order to do that, we actually need to have a functioning government, and that that's important. And and the, it requires an understanding of what government can do, um, and it, and an understanding its role in you know shaping the economy. Well, and appreciating that that it it has a, a, a role that we want that right, yeah. we find important and useful and worthwhile, and I think that's missing. So, with us today, uh, I'm excited to announce is Chris Sagers. Yeah, so Chris Sagers is the James A. Thomas Professor of Law at Cleveland State University, and is nationally recognized expert on American competition policy. He has testified before the U.S. Congress and the Antitrust Modernization Commission and is most recently the author of United States versus Apple, Competition in America, which is among many of his books. Um, His articles have appeared in the Georgetown Law Journal, UCLA Law Review, and other leading journals. And he contributes regularly to pop media, including Slate and NPR. Professor Sagers has won several awards for teaching and scholarship, including CSU's Campus-Wide Distinguished Research Award, the Law Alumni Association's Walter G. Stapleton Award for Faculty Excellence, and the Student Body's Teacher of the Year Award. From 2014 to 2017, he served as founding faculty director of the Cleveland Marshall Solo Practice Incubator. And before joining the faculty, Professor Sager has practiced law for four years in Washington, D.C. Hailing originally from the peaceful obscurity of small town Iowa, Professor Sagers lives with his wife, who is news director of Cleveland's public radio station, two sons, and a three-legged dog in the nicest town in America, Cleveland Heights, Ohio. So joining us today is Chris Sakers at uh, Cleveland State University. And Chris, we're wondering if you can start us off a little bit by just telling us about yourself. Ah, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me. It's a, a pleasure. Um, so I am a law professor at Cleveland State University. I study antitrust law, and we're going to talk a lot more about what that is, I think. Uh, but I've, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been doing that as my primary focus for about 20 years. Fantastic. So we're going to dig into it a little bit more, but I think that one of the things it's important for us to kind of understand is what 
antitrust means. Right. Like what is antitrust? (laughs) Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, So it's, it's easier to give generalizations than it is to give uh, details, but I I can do both. So the, you know, as a generalization, antitrust is a, a law. It's a federal law based on statute that requires businesses to compete. Basically it says businesses can't do things uh, to try to inappropriately protect themselves from competition. <clears throat> so in practice, what that means is they basically can't uh, make agreements with each other or otherwise join together in ways that would protect them from the discipline of uh, price and quality competition. And we can go even a little bit more specific than that, because even though it turns out to be a fairly complicated body of law, it basically boils down to about three big rules, three big things that you can't do. First of all, uh, you can't have agreements. Like, uh, as we sometimes say, contracts, combinations, or conspiracies, you can't have agreements with other firms that would help you avoid the normal functioning of price and quality competition. You can't get uh, big and then act unilaterally. So you, you also can't do things unilaterally without agreements. If those things could protect you from price and quality competition, and that's what we call monopolization. So, you know, the first two things are agreements or multilateral action. The second thing is monopolization or unilateral action. And then the third thing you can't do is you can't acquire your competitors in such a way that it would, it would insulate you from ordinary competition. Simple as that. So now when I think of monopoly, obviously, you know, I think everybody probably thinks of the standard one of, you know, Mama Bell, where (laughs) there was, there was no competition. Or the board game. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That too. I hear that one once in a while. You might be surprised. (laughs) Sure. All the time. (laughs) And in that case, right, the government stepped in to, Uh uh, to, to break it apart as it, as it were, is that kind Mm -hmm. of the standard approach to a monopoly when, when monopoly is an issue and it is government intervention different than when it's one of the other two instances? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. In principle, no, there's no difference between the enforcement of those three rules. In practice, there probably are, are lots of differences. Uh, but in, in principle, all three of those rules can be enforced uh, either by the government and that means either the federal government or the state governments actually are involved in enforcement of these laws too, or by private people. And again, in principle, the government and private plaintiffs can enforce all the same rules in largely the same way. So if you're a business, for example, and you think that uh, some competitor of yours is a monopolist and has used its power to squeeze you out of the market, uh, you can bring a private lawsuit against that monopolist. And, you know, you specifically asked about breakup. I mean, it, it is true that uh, AT&T, you know, was a, was a paradigmatic uh, seminal case. And it did involve a successful effort to, uh, to do a breakup. And we often think of antitrust as this law that involves breakups. And the press in particular likes to report on big antitrust cases as government efforts to uh, break up companies. Um, this is probably a little in the weeds. It, it turns out, actually, that breakup is a very unusual remedy, and the government usually doesn't seek it. Uh, th- there are other ways we enforce the law, and, and breakup is pretty unusual. 
That's really interesting. So I have a really quick question for you. Um, so at the Growing Democracy Project, we're really interested in demystifying some of these policy areas. And I feel like in some ways, antitrust is one of those places that I think is really important for us to demystify. But could you tell us why you think the work that you're doing is important for people to know, like everyday people to know um, and to understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, boy, uh, boy uh, I think I can answer that. It's a, It seems to me a a big question, and there's different, it's kind of different questions, really. I mean, it, there's at least two questions there, both of which completely fascinate me uh, and, and also disappoint me because, uh, you know, it, unfortunately, I, I don't personally believe this law has worked out very well. And it's not because I think the law is wrong. I think that it's, it turns out to be really hard to enforce. Uh, it would be to our collective benefit if the law were enforced better. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's a problem. So, I mean, I think that's at least two questions. First of all, I mean, is it a good policy? Like, would it be a good policy uh, if, let's just say, assume for the sake of it, the government could really effectively enforce those three rules I mentioned? I mean, I think it would be a pretty good policy. It would have a lot of benefits for us. Now, this is not uh, uncontroversial. And there's a lot of people all across the political spectrum. It's not just the left or the right. It's, it's everybody who has real doubts about whether very vigorous competition, which is usually thought to be the goal of antitrust, whether that's really a good thing, right? There are a lot of criticisms all across the board about whether this actually is a real desirable policy. I humbly believe that mark, you know, fairly vigorous markets are a good thing for all of us in the aggregate in the long run, most of the time, for the following reason. On the simple, you know, on, on a very practical level, uh, the distribution of stuff, the distribution of goods and services, which, I mean, when you talk about it like that, you sound boring. You sound like you're... <laughs> like an like, economist. <laughs> yeah, you sound like you're teaching in a, an accounting class or something, and it sounds dull. But if you start thinking about it, um, if you, at least if you feel about it, like I do, the distribution of goods and services is like, it's everything. The allocation of resources in the economy is, is everything. It's not just making sure we get enough toilet paper out to South Bend. It's, it's getting all the things to everybody who needs them. And we literally, you know, in a, for a species that has radically outpaced its own environment's ability to support it, the functioning of that system is, is like life critical. It turns out it works better. Uh, the resources are better distributed, and people get more of what they need and more of what they want, and will have a higher standard of living. Uh, not and not just the rich. I, I personally believe, but everybody. It's we get a better distribution of wealth as well as a more efficient economy. So that's even on the simplest level. The most humble working of markets is probably to our collective benefit. I think for those reasons. But there are bigger reasons. That well-functioning markets are pretty desirable, I think. And that's because there are problems in society associated with uh, bigness, with concentrations of wealth and power that we all ought to care about. Uh, and, you know, I, I won't get on this soapbox for too long. A lot of people are talking about it. I don't think I'm telling anyone anything we haven't heard in the press and in popular debate a lot. Uh, but big, big concentrations of wealth tend to seriously undermine Democratic values, they make it so that we all kind of work for very powerful companies that we don't have much power to uh, do anything about, etc. That's just my answer to the first kind of question, I think, which is, 
why should why should society know and care about this policy? Again, it's controversial. You don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but uh, that's that's my take. The second way of thinking about this, though, and I think this is really significant. I just wrote a whole book about it. The law, like I said, this law has turned out to be very difficult to enforce. When the government tries, the government mostly doesn't really enforce it anymore, and they haven't for a while because it's really expensive and difficult and politically unpopular to enforce. Uh, and I personally believe that the fundamental culprit, you know, there's a lot of people talking about who's the bad guy who's behind the death of antitrust. We hear a lot about the, you know, the University of Chicago School of, of Law and Economics as, as the devil uh, or particular conservative judges as, as the bad guy. And, you know, there's all those, all those forces in society have played a role. But I think the fundamental reason the law isn't enforced very well is because the public doesn't really believe in it. We, as a people, uh, you know, we're ideologically diverse and everything. But here's, I mean, you guys are sort of students of democracy, students of American society. And it's often said that uniquely in the world, Americans believe in free enterprise. Uh, left and right, we believe in it, for, mo- for the most part. I mean, we have some people on the genuine left and the genuine right who maybe don't care about it so much. But for the most part, we as a people claim to believe in markets and competition and, uh, you know, good old Yankee do-it-yourselfism. And yet, when you get an antitrust case in which the government says, so-and-so got real big and squeezed out their competitors or entered into agreements to do this or that or the other thing that made competition, there will be people all across the political spectrum who really think it's a big mistake, hate the government for doing it, and say, this is just government getting in the way and screwing things up. And I don't really mean to blame anybody for that. Uh, And I don't think it, I'm not trying to say it's because anybody's ignorant or anything like that. It's that markets turn out to be, again, I, in my humble opinion, they turn out to be kind of difficult to assess in specific instances. And it's just really hard to look. It's, it's, it's very easy in the abstract to say, I believe in competition. It's a way of keeping you know, the powerful companies from getting too powerful. It's a way of efficiently allocating resources. It's much harder to look at a specific case and say, oh yeah, this is probably a good case for the government to put somebody in prison because, because markets would, would do a better, you know, whatever. Uh, it's very easy to, to sympathize with the defendant, like in any old kind of case. And so the government constantly struggles with that problem. And for the most part, they just don't enforce the law. So now I, I have a question for you, and just, by the way, an interesting fun fact and aside to our listeners uh, about the area of antitrust is that the earliest legislation was actually introduced by Ohio Senator John Sherman uh, that resulted in the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. So now is that the, the law that's still in effect today that we're operating under? Yes, indeed it is. Wow. The Sherman Act of 1890. So... Yeah, so uh, one of the oldest statu- oldest important statutes still in force. That's absolutely true. The the first two of those rules I mentioned. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but uh, mm-hmm. the first two, the the rule against agreements, you know, anti-competitive agreements, and the rule against monopolizations. Those are sections one and two of the Sherman Act. So that's a 130 year old law, uh, and we're still trying to figure out what it even means. Uh, the thing about acquiring companies that's that's from uh, you know the the third rule says you can't acquire your competitors if it would be anti-competitive. That's from Section 7 of a very famous 1914 statute called the Clayton Act. 
And again, if you're a student of American history, the Clayton Act was really significant in the Progressive Era. So now, uh, uh, my follow-up to that is, and I, I don't know if that was, no, I think it was a question. Yeah, it was a question, right? Listeners, we ever really on this? That was a question. Uh, my follow-up to that is that, um, now, as a, as a public policy scholar myself, and, and you know, one who, who, who teaches economics, I tend to think of policy as needing to meet, uh, at least for my own ability to, to see it as useful and relevant, as needing to meet at, at least two markers. The first is that we're, it's actually solving a problem. Right. Is there something that exists in the world that this is trying to, um, uh, I don't know, protect or create or, 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 or stop? And it, and it does sound like that those things are a problem. The second topic is that it has to be something that's enforceable and that's useful. <laughs> and it sounds like that's where this fails, right? That this isn't something that's actually uh, a, either able to be or willing to be implemented uh, and 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 um, put into practice. So if that's the case, and right, at least in the case of this antitrust legislation and capitalism, is mm. there a need for something else to kind of fill that void? And if so, what would that something else look like? Sure. Yeah. So I mean, we're you know we're in kind of a historic pickle, I think, because. I don't know what that something else necessarily would be. There are a handful of, you know, there's a, a short menu of uh, potential replacements for antitrust, one of which is doing nothing, repealing antitrust and, and letting markets just do what they do. And, uh, uh, you know, but other solutions include, you know, rather more radical uh, approaches uh, from, I guess, what you would call the left. Uh, you, you probably know most of the agitation in antitrust right now concerns big tech and in particular the, the so-called platform companies. And there's a, you know, there's a non-trivial effort in, in Congress right now to re-regulate those things. The way that we used to regulate common carriers, the way we used to regulate AT&T, for example. Uh, the historic pickle, I think, is, I mean, can you imagine Congress adopting a law like that? Our, our Congress, circa 2021, 20, creating a new common carrier federal regulatory agency. I mean, come on. There are, but so my answer to the question is, what what should we do about it? I mean, preface this with the fact that I'm I'm maybe a little overly bleak, and that's just a personal a character flaw. I don't really know that there's a lot we can do. I, you know, like I said, I I wrote a book about this, and the, the book was specifically about a particular case in antitrust. But the real question in the book was was exactly this: It's like if it's really true that popular support is needed for this law to be enforceable, how is it going to be enforceable? And I spent about five years trying to come up with a, an answer that was, was optimistic about that, and I, I sort of didn't. So, you know, I want to believe it's possible to have this law, and I, I do happen to think this is the right law. This is the right approach. A, a rule that, a set of rules that say uh, markets work pretty well. We ought to try to let markets do what they do when they work and then fix other problems when markets don't work. And we, I think we know really kind of what the, I mean, there are problems that, you know, won't be solved by more competition. Uh, wealth distribution seems to be not very well addressed by just more vigorous competition for whatever it, reason. It, internet access to rural places. Yeah, maybe. Right. Mail I mean, the, access, right? The, the, there probably are some goods that it would be politically desirable for the government to just pay for. All right. But anyway, so I, I kind of think, you know, 
even in those cases though, where we think markets are the right approach, well, you know, mark, markets do seem empirically to be uh, to be susceptible to abuses, to susceptible to concentration, and to anti-competitive abuses. And we need a government for that. And I don't really see a whole lot of an alternative to having the government enforce this sort of, you know, tort style law enforcement style set of antitrust rules. And um, I, I think it could work pretty well if the government felt like, you know, one thought is you could try to figure out how to make antitrust enforcement less critically dependent on popular opinion. Mm-hmm. But that, <laughs> you know, that that's a big can of worms, right? I mean, you know, if the Justice Department, for example, felt like it could enforce, enforce uh, the Sherman Act, even though it will be, you know, individual cases will be decried. Uh, that might be desirable. I don't, I don't exactly know how to make that happen. W- one benefit of doing it, assuming I'm not completely wrong about everything I believe, is that if the government did that, like, I, I'd like to see the government just give it a shot. We haven't enforced the antitrust laws for about 40 years, and things don't seem very good to me in a lot of respects in our economy. I'd like to give a shot at actually enforcing the law for a decade or so and see if things get better. And that really might help popular opinion. I mean, if, if you could persuade people with 10 years of anecdotes and, and good supportable data that, uh, that import, you know, give me an example. 10 years ago, I guess, 10 or 12 years ago, the Obama administration took action to stop a very big merger. T-Mobile, uh, AT&T wanted to acquire T-Mobile. And the government didn't sue, but they were going to. Uh, uh, and in, under the threat of suit, the parties dropped that deal. It's for years. T-Mobile and AT&T had argued that they absolutely needed this merger because T-Mobile was going to crater. T-Mobile was going to fail. It needed Spectrum. It needed this. It needed that. Well, guess what? After the deal, the T-Mobile did just fine. T-Mobile, in fact, flourished better than it had uh, when AT&T was trying to get it. That's a real nice, understandable little anecdote suggesting that, in fact, competition is pretty good for the health of companies and probably for the health of economies. Uh, you know, I don't know if we saw if we saw enforcement like that on a much broader basis with lots, you know, a, a nice, solid period of time over to which to, to observe uh, the effects. Maybe that could help. So I wonder what your thoughts are on how much of public dislike or distrust Right of this policy stems from a perception of unequal enforcement, right? Yeah. Where you know certain industries maybe are 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 friends with you know pol- political parties, and so they don't yeah. get this enforcement rained upon them, and yet others, right, seem to be seem to be the target. I mean, it's a very good question, and I, and I don't know. I don't know why people don't don't support the law. I honestly think that Americans as a people. Don't and again, we're all across the spectrum, it's not one one persuasion. Uh, we just don't like our government very much. We don't support government action, and it's it's pretty easy for any defendant to find friends of of all kinds of different persuasions. You know, as, as an example, AT and T couldn't buy T Mobile, and I just did its job there. But as everybody knows. T-Mobile nevertheless merged with a different company recently, and the Trump administration let that go through. So, you know, Obama Obama stopped a 4-3 merger in in cell phones, but they got their 4-3 merger in cell phones anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, when that merger was pending and the government was considering what to do with it, I, I heard people of all different walks of life, all different persuasions, you know, saying that it, it was going to be great. Uh, this this merger is going to be great. We're going to build out broadband to rural. 
uh, areas. We're going to, you know, we're going to have better service, blah, blah, blah. So I, you know, I think that people, the deals are complex, the markets are complex, they're hard to assess, and there's always an argument and and 100,000 economists mm-hmm. to argue different positions in every case, and the people don't know who to believe. That's really interesting, and I think, because originally we were talking about, right, it's so important from our perspective, podcast perspective, us as academics perspective, um, for people to understand kind of the policies, how, how, how policy shapes what's actually happening. You know, one of the things I'm really interested in, in part because you brought up tech, and so I think to me, my, my brain goes there, you know, in some ways, or, or even, uh, you know, other major corporations, you know, these corporations are also really big policy players, right? Like, so on the flip side, it's not just that we have a hard time regulating them. They've also been very influential in shaping whether or not they're regulated, right? Because they're so big. Can can you help us make sense of how that fits into the puzzle? <laughs> Throw a curve, like a, just a giant curveball at you. Giant, sure. big existential questions here. I think I have thoughts. I mean, in my tiny little area of the policy world, which is antitrust enforcement, you know, con- Congress isn't directly that influential because you know, antitrust is mostly a matter of law enforcement by a couple of federal agencies in cases that they bring in front of the federal courts. So really the important institution in antitrust is, is the courts. For better or worse, I think that the federal judiciary has swung really far to the right, and in particular in economic matters, they seem as a group, including lots of Democrats, Democrat appointees, uh, take a very sort of uh, libertarian free market point of view on on regulation. And uh, it's hard to persuade them to a lot of federal judges right now, I'm I'm certain, just cannot imagine an antitrust defendant ever losing. And that the influence, that influence comes very much the most from the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has really swung to the right. Okay, but you asked, and, you know, in principle, corporations and wealthy people don't influence uh, the courts directly. They they have influence over appointments by making sure that... uh, uh, the White House and the Senate are in conservative hands. So to the extent that, uh, you know, those two institutions have been held by Republicans, that has had a big influence on on antitrust. There's a different way that Congress is involved, which is go <sighs> a couple things. I mean, Congress hates plaintiff's lawyers. They hate private enforcers of various laws. And antitrust is importantly enforced by by private plaintiffs. About 90% of American antitrust enforcement is is private. The government only brings 10% of the cases. Uh, And Congress, in many ways, has really, really restricted private litigation, especially private class action litigation. So, uh, you know, however you might feel about tort reform sort of politics, one one significant consequence of it has been that certain laws have become much more difficult to enforce, including antitrust. Congress's bigger role, though, and man, the, the companies spend a lot of money on this has been in, in really in other policies, and I think above all in intellectual property. They spend a lot of money on intellectual. I mean, you asked about regulation, but a, a different but related problem is that competition is uh, kept pretty far at bay in a lot of sectors in, in tech and elsewhere, especially in big tech, by intellectual property rules that you know the rights holders themselves have largely written. In copyright law, they, they literally write the law. That's a long story in itself. Uh, but in intellectual property, generally, they spend a lot of money making sure they have the rules they want. So they, you know, antitrust is this little, compared to intellectual property, I think it's this little gadfly 
biting around at the at the edges of the market power that that firms hold, and the market power mainly comes from their their various other rights. And yeah, I mean, the odds of some other regulatory approach happening are so low simply because you cannot. I can't imagine either Democrats or Republicans really voting for significant new regulation of any business right now. Okay, so I have one quick follow-up, and this is for our listeners. One of the things that we'll do every once in a while is uh, make sure that we understand terms. Can you describe for us what tort and tort reform is real yeah. quick? Yeah. Okay, so tort law is a lawyer's word for the law that says you can sue people when they hurt you. So if you're hurt you know, if you bring a negligence claim, if you're hurt by someone who negligently drove their car and injured you, the thing that you're suing for them is for a violation of tort law. Negligence is a tort. Antitrust is is a tort-style law because it's enforced by lawsuits brought after the fact. In other words, to say that it's a tort-style law or a law enforcement law is is to say that it's not really a kind of regulation as we ordinarily think of regulation. That word usually, oftentimes we use to mean uh, you know, a situation in which a government agency or some government actor proactively, prospectively tells companies what they are, what they can and can't do. Tort style law says, man, you know, people can go out in the world and do what they want. If you hurt somebody, though, after the fact, we're going to ask if you if you behaved inappropriately. So antitrust is like that. Uh, it doesn't say what products you can make, uh, what price you can sell, etc. It says go forth and prosper. But we will t- take a look after the fact to see if you if you broke certain general rules. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, so I have to ask this because I I heard that you teach administrative law and and, and the Administrative Procedures Act at Mm -hmm. at Cleveland Marshall. And Ashley and I are both public administration scholars as well. So, you know, one argument that, I mean, we've had, you know, several guests on the show say it is that, right, public administration is not, a neutral arbiter. And, and this results in things that may in fact kind of reinforce some of the antitrust problems. And I'm thinking of, right, if, if a state government, you know, passes essentially barriers to entry that limit competition, right. And I'm thinking about if you're a hairstylist or, uh, you know, if you work in a salon, something like that, where if you're a lawyer, if you're a lawyer, right, that, that the goal is kind of to keep, the, the playing field smaller. And also public administration does tend to rely on experts for help in administrative lawmaking. So I'm wondering, right, what what are your thoughts on that? Or is that overblown or? No, um, no I, I don't think so. I mean, it feels like a can of worms and I, your, the two of you will have more interesting thoughts on this than, than I would. But I mean, I have several responses. For one thing, like you mentioned, uh, what what about public public policies that in fact are anti competitive? Don't we have those too? And the answer is yeah. And in in fact, federal antitrust is in active tension with those kind of policies. But it's a funny thing. Um, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but there is there is a whole sort of subgenre, little branch of antitrust law that deals with the problem of state government laws that are anti competitive. State government pork barrel, uh, you know, things like uh, you can't. You know, you can't clean out somebody's gutters unless you have a gutter cleaner license or whatever. You know, ridiculous ordinary tasks are require a license and a test, and it doesn't seem to serve any purpose except uh, protecting incumbents. Uh, the, the, for what it's worth, the, the federal courts say that antitrust is opposed to those things 
the, the basic rule is the states are, because we have a federal system, the federal government constitutionally can't tell states how to make their own policies. States can do what they want, but within some limits. And federal antitrust law does actually constrain some of those things. That in and of itself poses some really fascinating issues. And, you know, uh, we could spend plenty of time in, in that rabbit hole. Like, like, is that good? I mean, is it good for, con- for federal antitrust? In, in some sense, if you said, well, you know, anti-competitive state laws are adopted democratically. And where does federal antitrust get off undermining democracy in that way? Uh, whereas many people respond to that argument by saying, well, in this respect, federal antitrust is actually policing democracy in a very healthy way. Because when, when you see state governments just handing out average taxpayers money in that way, right, saying that you, you're not allowed to get a haircut unless your barber has a license. And, it, and we're going to make it really hard for barbers to get a license. I mean, that's really just giving out, giving out uh, you know, consumers money to the barber's lobby. And uh, a legislature is, is not likely to be very democratically accountable for that. So maybe federal antitrust in that respect is, is uh, pro, pro, pro-democracy in a way. Uh, but, you know, more generally, this, this question about whether government or, I mean, if I understand you, you know, government or public policy, whether it really can be a neutral arbiter or, or whether it just really channels vested interests in a different way. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, teaching, you know, teaching the administrative law courses is a labor of love. I, I love it. And I, I find that the students love it too. But I, I also find that, uh, <laughs> do they love it? I, they don't love administrative law. <laughs> they don't love the Administrative Procedures Act. But what they do love is thinking about the big picture questions. I always start the class that I teach by telling them that we're basically, our, our big job in the class is to deconstruct the schoolhouse rock vision of American democracy. Like it doesn't really work like that. And we're going to talk about all the ways that the, you know, the aspirations are not delivered on. And I find that uh, students are hungry for that. I mean, when I, when I first started teaching the course years and years ago, I I was afraid that my sort of bleak cynicism, you know, would, would be discouraged because a lot of people go to law school because they want to make a contribution. They want to do good things. And, and God bless them. And I thought that, uh, you know, I would come off as a discouraging, but I, I find that they, Ameri- uh, young Americans are hungry for that. They, they sense that they haven't really been told the whole story and they're ready to, to hear more of it. So I guess my answer is, yeah, I mean, the system we've got probably is mostly a channel for interests. I don't, I, again, I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys have to think. Like, is, is public choice economics a good argument? Uh, does, if the institutions fail, do they fail for those reasons or, or whatever? But I'm not very optimistic. I, I guess I'm fairly left-leaning, so I'm not supposed to like public choice. <laughs> and I'm supposed to believe in government, but I, I do think it's all pretty grimy. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you like my, my, my quick response, which is I am someone who studies government and critiques government and thinks that it is failing miserably often, mm-hmm. but I am hopeful that government can be an answer because it is one of the best sources for holding, theoretically, holding people accountable democratically. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> right? so I'm constantly in tension with how I feel about yeah. <laughs> public sector work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought that I think is probably one of the things that, that drew Ashley and I together yeah. <laughs> so quickly is that 
I, I have huge hopes and huge aspirations for the power of government and uh, to, to, to be wielded by a democratic society sure. as a force for good and the way that it's implemented. <laughs> yeah. And then to do that is complicated and hard and many times is ideal, right? Like that I'm just keep striving for an ideal that I may never, that may not even be realistic. (laughs) The hurdles seem so overwhelming. I mean, it feels like I spent all this time, 20 years thinking about antitrust law, believing in it, wanting to make it better. And I had all these optimistic hopes, especially early in the early years. And I only realized, you know, in the last five or five or seven years that, man, these, this is the wrong problem. Like the, the problem is our civil institutions. Yeah. <laughs> our, we're not going to have antitrust at all uh, under the current regime. And I can, you know, the things that have to happen to change that I, I despair of it happening in my lifetime, surely. Uh, I mean, without fixing electoral institutions, I don't see anything else happening. And and I don't see us fixing those institutions. But I, listen, so, I think I think Newton was would have been a great public administration and policy scholar because you know he so he talks about right forces in motion tend to want to stay in motion forces mm-hmm. at rest want to tend to want to stay at rest and that is public administration and how it utilizes and and, and is driven by power right that mm-hmm. there's this maintenance of the status quo and in that direction is where it's wanting to go. And to change it and redirect it off of that takes, you know, such a massive uh, energy that it's, uh, it's rare. It's rare. And, and so I work at the, lo- most of my research is at the local level. So theoretically that happens at the local level, but we live in the Cleveland region. Um, and we know that, <laughs> we know that inertia, political inertia continues yeah. in local spaces as well. Like it's, it's, it's a real phenomenon that, mm-hmm. um, and, but, it, but it's also like the flip side of like, but I also think change can like I somehow somewhere keep some nugget of optimism, which is like, complacency is not the answer like no. constant pushing is mm-hmm. and, and holding people accountable at least yeah. makes minor <laughs> i mean you know the the state of the debate in antitrust i think would be a very very interesting problem for people of your persuasion and you know political scientists generally i guess and and uh uh thinkers on constitutional law because uh, i suppose it's kind of microcosmic but you know, we have sort of people dug in very deeply in relatively extreme positions. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is there is a very active lobby for change that uh, is dismissive of anything other than radical change. Mm-hmm. And they control the debate right mm-hmm. now. And antitrust, I can't imagine any of their ideas being adopted ever. And it's interesting because in a lot of movement spaces, there's always like the there tends to be the the far radical group. And then there's this other group that usually people are like, okay, all right. So if we're going to change, we're going to work with you. Um, but the radical ideas need to be there to like push the pendulum, but that's not, you don't see that as there. I don't get me wrong. I say, God bless them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, progressives yeah. in antitrust have been extremely effective in getting some issues on the agenda that say moderates. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm a, I'm a moderate by comparison, but have never been effective. In that sort of thing. And, you know, I want to believe exactly what you just said. It's like the service of the radical in this space is going to be building compromise closer to the middle, like real policy towards the middle. And maybe, I I don't know, but I, I, I'm just almost certain that the result is going to be nothing. 
Now, I, I mean, at least around the issue of social media, and I'm thinking, of course, Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, there's, isn't there at least some, like, political congruence where yeah. both sides see Facebook see, as evil? This is, this is why I want you guys to study this. Because... <laughs> But let me tell you why. Because what you just said is how it seems, and yet it isn't true. Mm. Okay, so one thing we've heard a lot about during the last, you know, seven years or so, there's been a lot of talk in the press and elsewhere about growing bipartisan consensus. And in particular, we're all surprised that moderate conservatives and even some more right-leaning conservatives have come to remember that they once believed in antitrust and believed in free markets <laughs> unrestrained by blah, blah, blah. They don't believe in it at all. And, uh, you know, again, it's like the, it's like the thing I said earlier, it's easy to say you're a f- believer in markets, real hard to support individual antitrust cases. Mm-hmm. Ask any, find any one of those conservatives that are allegedly the new spokespeople for a new bipartisan antitrust, like Mike Lee or, you know, Josh Hawley, who's a, a whack job, but can, you know, uh, Ken Buck, other people, all right? These people who talk a good game, Jim, Jim Sensenbrenner, there's a million of them. Ask them about any individual antitrust case. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk a good game, ask them about a real case, and they're like, ah, oh, the government ought to stay out of that. The, the market can clearly <laughs> handle it. Right? That tension of like, I want, you know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a question, why, why are they, like, why are they doing this? Like, why, yeah. why do they talk a good game when it's only general? You know, they're different there are different answers to that question. One is, well, it's very, very popular with the conservative base to criticize mm-hmm. the platform companies, which are alleged to be restraining mm-hmm. conservative speech. Um, and that's, that's like my funniest irony of all time that, you know, the argument now, you know, every monopoly that antitrust believers or Democrats or the left have criticized for the last 50 years Conservatives have said, you guys are stupid. This isn't a monopoly. You know, Bill Gates is doing miracles for everyone. And, you know, the fact that you just hate him because he's rich and successful, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, antitrust died. If we had had an antitrust during the last 40 years, we might not have, say, Facebook, which can silence conservatives. I don't doubt that Facebook discriminates against conservative points of view. It does seem to have some uh, support. But if you're the if you're a believer in free markets, your view has to be, I think, these are assets owned by private people. This is private yeah. property, yeah. and what you want to restrain, what what conservatives now want to do, I, with, either with antitrust suits or by creating a new federal regulator or by you know repealing Section two hundred and thirty or whatever it is, is not just regulate private property, which conservatives aren't supposed to like, but to regulate speech. Uh, you know, like, if you're a libertarian, which is, which is a view that sort of infuses a lot of the American right, that ought to be the worst sin of conceivable to have a government regulator for speech. Uh, and yet, that's the position that a lot of conservatives are now in. The only monopoly they could imagine being regulated is one that they might have prevented had they allowed antitrust to work, and, and one that is supposed to be dearest to their their values, but now they want to regulate it. So it's really, I'm I guess, <laughs> I mean, there's so much we could continue to unpack, but right, um, I know. we are at, we're, we're almost at time. So I want to, yeah. I want to ask you though, before we leave, like, is there anything else, like any words of wisdom for our listeners, anything that you want them to be able to take away from our conversation? 
Boy, that it's a good and hard question. I definitely don't have words of wisdom. What I, <laughs> what I, what I do think after doing this, uh, you know, I've done this for a long time and I think my two, my two biggest problems are these in terms of having a domestic economic policy, like a, a competition policy. I think that people ought to understand you, you don't have to believe in my point of view if you don't want, but you do have to accept we're never going to have a meaningful policy in that space. I, I don't think whether it's the creation of a new regulator or the adoption of new rules or, you know, a return to enforcement of the antitrust law we've already had for more than a century. None of it is ever going to work unless you can find some public consensus behind a particular enforcement vision. And we haven't had that for the most part for the entire history of this policy. So when people are having debates about antitrust now, I wish they would bear that in mind. But the second big thing is whatever your particular axe is that you're grinding. My, mine for a long time has been antitrust. For other people, it's other issues. It's intellectual property or it's tax law or, or anything else. None of what you consider important right now is what's really important because we have a broken government, sort of a historically dysfunctional government, and uh, none, none of us are going to find you know, a progressively improving world that we all sort of dream about until we fix those basic problems. So we all just, I think, probably ought to forget fighting about the other policy issues for a while and fix, you know, clean up our house. Good, good. Right, let's hope that people with influence listen to that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, Chris. Really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd Swan. With me, as always, is my co host, Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Goldlock Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. And our podcast is supported by our Patreon patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our social media handles. On Twitter, we're at Growing Dem. And on Instagram and Facebook, we're at Growing Democracy OH. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, and more, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about filling the gap.